All right, hi everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, the main host, uh, and tonight I have got two guests with me. First off, I have our co host, Susan. Fire Nation. <laughs> yes. Uh, and next up, we have Daniel. I am a 400 foot tall purple platypus bear with pink horns and silver wings. <laughs> You totally just Googled that. Don't even start with me. But the delivery was on point. Right? That's what matters, isn't it? Yes. I can't tell if he's lying. Oh, gosh. So good. Uh, So Casey will hopefully be joining us in just a little bit, but uh, three of us are going to be starting off uh, this recording. Uh, So welcome, everyone. Uh, We are so pumped uh, to get to do another character-centric episode. And today we are... We are finally doing it. We talked about it when we recorded The Beach. We've mentioned it several times over the course of this <laughs> this podcast, but we are we are doing our Azula-centric episode. Not yeah, because yeah, I lobbied yeah. for it or anything at all. <laughs> for like four months. Nothing like that. What can I say? You know, Susan, you have a lot of significant donors behind you, and it just, you know, the lobbying, it really works. <laughs> <laughs> Don't knock small donors. Don't <laughs> small donors. Yes. Uh, so just uh, to kind of talk, uh, lay the groundwork for where we're going to be heading with this discussion. Again, with our character-centric episodes, um, we're going to be kind of talking about the history of the character, but also just kind of talking about them as a whole in their journey and really doing a deep dive. Um, And now with our kind of new episode structure, uh, this is going to be a multi-part series. I'm not sure how many parts we're going to split it up into, but uh, we're going to jump into this. And the three things that we're going to keep in mind while discussing this is uh, Azula as the antagonist in the show, Uh, Azula, the princess and second born of the Fire Nation royal family, kind of everything that that falls under. And then looking at Azula, the 14-year-old, and how she was shaped, um, kind of diving into more of her psychology and just everything there. And before we even get started, I want to do a quick shout out to um, Hello Future Me on YouTube. They uh, He did this incredible video breaking down the psychology of Azula. Uh, it's like a 50-minute video and... It is incredibly well-researched. He consulted with a lot of different folks in the psychiatric field and got some great information, and it was a big inspiration, I know, for me while shaping this outline, but also just so exciting because we get, ah, it just proves that the show just has so many layers, and you can just bring in those real-world principles to analyze these fictional characters. Um, So, yeah, uh, so to kind of first start things off um i just want to get both of you in your initial thoughts when you started revisiting this show as adults what was it like to see a character like this in the show and what kind of initial new insights did you kind of get from her re-watching it Uh, re-watching it (laughs) (laughs) um i i think the biggest thing for me that's always always stood out about her is that she's so driven like everything about her it just has this intense insatiable drive behind it whether it's 
you know, perfecting her firebending to a point that no one else has reached before or, um, you know, completing the task that her brother couldn't complete. Every single thing that she does is so uh, relentlessly, I don't want to say perfect, but, you know, trying to be perfect with mm. such vapid devotion. Mm. Absolutely. That's always been kind of her character uh, character trait for me that's really stood out about her and made her a really compelling character. Mm. Susan, what about you? How it's kind of like it's so rewatching it as an adult, it's kind of saying, so that's not how I'm going to parent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and how on. do I avoid creating that? <laughs> as you were just telling us earlier that your daughter wants to move on to like full contact sparring <laughs> she's sick man charging straight ahead at the opponent was it <laughs> yes. yes she did that poor child <laughs> she did win though poor child yes oh man um no i mean so watching it over again you really grow to appreciate the time character and just the intricate nature with what was created on screen, but not just through the writing and the actual drawing, but the actual voice actress too that brought Azula to life. Like mm-hmm. just the way the delivery was on these lines, the care with which there was some thought behind what was said, not just the writing, but the way it's conveyed and said and the tone. And it's just impressive that level of detail because everything is done in Azula in such a calculating manner. There's not something, and and you see it near the end where that just falls apart. Mm. And it's just amazing to watch someone so calculated who knows every move, who's probably like, you know, amazing at whatever firebending equivalent of chess is. And just watching that the pieces aren't falling into place the way she initially intended. And I think that's, Something that we really, just to watch that character have that downfall, the actress who was voicing her, I mean, kudos, because you really get to feel for that character, and, uh, you know, the writing is just A-plus with her. Like, everything does is like, you know, obviously we quoted at the beginning, because Daniel's just using Google over there. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, she's got... It's amazing. You really don't feel like there's a real bad guy. I mean, yeah, Ozai's out there. You know, oh, yeah, he's out there to kill the Fire Lord. <laughs> but, like, really, once Azula shows up in, the, like, the first episode where she meets the gang, it's like, holy, we didn't know someone could shoot lightning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, wow. And I think it's, you know, big shout out to Gray Delisle, who uh, now goes by uh, Gray Delisle Griffin. Um, she is the voice actress behind Azula. And just the fact that she was able to give such a dynamic performance every time. And then we got to see so many different layers and levels to Azula's intensity and mm-hmm. really kind of playing that villain in a way that like, you so much of who she is as a character is how she manipulates and controls the people around her. So all of her kind of 
ways of speaking to other people is so controlled and so intentional because she understands the power of her voice and that commanding presence. And Gray Griffin just knocks it out of the park with every scene that she that she has with Azula. Um, yeah. mm. I, Definitely. I think speaking of that, the, the one that sticks out most in my mind, I know we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about the beach, but uh, that scene when they're all around the campfire, mm. and they're talking about their mm-hmm. past sob stories and you know, she's seems to be having you know a legitimate moment of sincerity and i don't want to say regret but you know sadness that like you know her own mother was you know so against her and you know she almost seemed on the verge of tears and she's like my own mother thought i was a monster and then well, just she wasn't the, wrong in the blink of an eye she just completely changes She's not wrong, of course, but it's still hurt. I mean, that was, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's such a magnificent performance, even just within you know, 10 seconds, just going from one to the other. Yeah, and it's like the only time that we get to see that vulnerability in that way and how fleeting it is, but how quickly that changes is such a testament to her character. Um, so I, I want to first start off and kind of just go chronological with how she shows up in the show. Um, so, of course, the f- very first time that we actually see Azula, this is before we even know who she is, uh, is in the episode The Storm, when uh, we are hearing about Zuko's Agni Kai as Iroh is telling all of the shipmates. We see this moment where Ozai is going to burn Zuko, and it cuts to the crowd as he does so. And we see three figures kind of standing prominently with others in the background. And that's Zhao, Iroh, and Azula. Iroh turns away and Zhao stares on. And so does this girl next to him. And the look of delight and just satisfaction that crosses her face instantly is showing that this is someone who does not really have empathy like already because we already know what to expect from Zhao because we've seen him up until this point and we know he's crazy and we know he's a he's an antagonist and a villain and has this brash reckless nature about him and he hates Zuko but who is this other person um and of course you know we don't see anything from Azula again until the end of season one and the last image that we see is Ozai giving her a task and it's just a close-up on her face as the season closes out after this whole victory at the North Pole but now we know someone else is coming and this is just kind of gonna be the next villain in the next season and just kind of dangling that in front of us um and of course it gets us right into the beginning of season two um so I want to kind of talk first about Azula's intro in uh, the first episode of book two, The Avatar State, uh, because it is just talk about setting the tone for a character. This like all of these (laughs) scenes are just amazing, but especially this first one. Um, And of course, we see her on the ship and the captain of the ship is saying the tides will not allow us to uh, bring the ship in. And that wonderful exchange where she is just saying, did the tides command the ship? You said the tides would not allow us to bring the ship in. Do the tides command the ship? 
And if I were to have you thrown overboard, would the tides think twice about smashing you against the rocky shore? Well then, maybe you should worry less about the tides, who have already made up their mind about killing you, and worry more about me, who's still mulling it over. Ah! Oh, oh my god! <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's have the conversation first. It's like season one. It felt like, no offense to Zhao's voice actor or Zhao's writing. It just it felt like there was like, we're looking for a bad guy. We're looking for a bad. Oh, look over here! There's a bad guy ready. And oh, and season two, you're like holy. Yeah, and coming from someone so young too. Somebody. Yeah, and coming from someone who's like so young. And I mean, it's it's very. I mean, we don't find out really till later that she is, you know, younger in that. Well, we we do get some context that she's younger, but it's always the thing. I mean, we were even discussing this before the episode we started recording. Azula does not seem like she is the younger child because of the way that she carries herself and acts this way. She's fourteen years old when we see her here, and that is just mind blowing. <laughs> Yeah, I think she literally just talked about throwing a guy off the boat and killing him. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a great example of her understanding of the world, I guess. Like mm. she, you know, she grew up as the princess of the Fire Nation, this firebending prodigy, and uh, you know, she's used to when she she says jump, the soldiers ask how high, you mm. know, and then. Now she's out in the world, and she doesn't see a reason why that should change. Mm. And, I mean, really, she's right, because, as previously mentioned, she's this fantastic firebender. She could kill anyone she wanted to. Mm. Like, there's nothing stopping her from doing that. And so, when this captain is refusing to do what she asks, or saying he's not able to, he just doesn't think that's a very legitimate excuse. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, keeping in mind the get these kind of like three facets that we wanted to discuss, you know, as the antagonist, it's setting her up as this kind of very scary villain. Um, and then as her as the princess, like you, you can expect when you have scenes of nobility that are kind of taking over for a mission and are directing something like there's already the weight that comes with a royal family member making decrees and telling soldiers and people underneath them like what to do. But as we get to see kind of in the next scene with her, it's also, as you're saying, Daniel, she is a phenomenal firebender and she is doing things that we have not seen any other firebender do up until this point. So that kind of brings us to that scene where she is lightning bending and it's this just crazy moment of introducing and expanding on the world of bending as we see her go through these very intentional like forms that brings lightning into the world and then she shoots it across and it's just this insane demonstration of power Mm. i don't know what what do you guys remember how you felt when you first kind of saw those scenes and like your initial impressions of azula just from those goosebumps (laughs) (laughs) no because like if you really want what really happened i'm just gonna put it out there It just became four. <laughs> Literally what we said. We were like, holy that she's four. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> I am confused. You can do that with firebending? Yeah. Mechanics? Yeah, I correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the first time that we had ever even heard of anyone bending fire, I think. Well so no, we, I mean, yeah. It? 
Mm. Well, I mean, it, it starts to, I think this is when we all start thinking in ourselves, like, okay, if, if you can lightning bend and you're a firebender, what else can you do with other bending? Because mm-hmm. we really had not really broached that topic. Yeah, it did kind of open up a lot of point. other doors. <laughs> as, as far as, you know, the firebending goes, we already knew she was kind of special because I think we'd seen her with the blue fire before this point. I can't remember for sure, but it's like there's, it was clear there was something different about, you know, her technique and her style. But then when we saw this demonstration of lightning and just the even the technical differences between that and the firebending, because um, like a lot of the firebending is is about you know broad strikes and big sweeping gestures and kicks and things like that. But then with the lightning, it's um, very intricate, very it, and very precise. It's exactly it's pinpoint and you know channeled through two fingers rather than a fist or a foot. Mm. Well, think about it. I mean, like, you're putting the lightning through your own body. If it's not precise, you're going to essentially char your insides. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And for a 14-year-old girl to be able to do that before anyone else can, except her dad, we find out later. But, like, it's just, it's, uh, it's so mind-blowingly phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And it, it really adds to... Uh, it's a it's a great moment of foreshadowing for the rest of the season because you know we get to see Toph come in in the Blind Bandit and approach Earthbending in a completely different way. Obviously, later in the season, Toph develops metal bending, and there's all these kinds of like different interpretations and Katara's blood bending. Yeah, well, blood bending's still like until season three, but still, it, it is kind of like setting this path for them to explore these different branches of bending and Mm -hmm. how these incredibly powerful individuals can bring because of their like new insight and the way that they approach and see the world it gives them that opportunity and for azula it's i mean so much of this again this is getting into how she was molded into the young woman that she is and it was clearly through intensive training from Ozai and the best firebending instructors in the Fire Nation. And we even mm-hmm. see in the flashback later on, you know, that Ozai even compares her to, you know, her great grandfather's or her grandfather Azulon and who she's named after. And it's this idea that like she is this she is a truly a prodigy. And I mean it's said outright at one point. And I mean it's just the fact that we have seen in the series with Ang Katara and Sokka in his own way, <laughs> um, you know, these kind of like these prodigies who are doing these incredible things, uh, you know, Ang being only 11, but still being this incredible avatar, you know, how are you going to even the scales, especially after what we saw at the end of the first season. I mean, he turns mm-hmm. into a giant koi fish and destroys an entire Fire Nation fleet. So it's like, okay, if he has that power within him, who is going to feel like a real threat? Mm-hmm. And that's where Azula enters and becomes this just terrifying antagonist for the rest of the series.
Hey guys, uh, sorry for the uh, low quality recording here in the middle of the break. Um, just wanted to thank you again for listening to this latest episode of The Legend of Portalcast. We're really excited to be talking about Azula. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Um, we just had some really exciting news that we wanted to share, though. Um, we have officially become sister podcasts with Beyond Bending Podcast. Um, we had Marilyn on the show for our non-bending combatants episode a few episodes back, but now we just really kind of want to make it official, and uh, they are our sister podcast, and just so thrilled to be able to have them as just kind of partners in the industry, and so excited with the insight that they bring, and so excited to be able to uh, kind of just move forward with Avatar and keep this discussion rolling. So be sure to check out their show at uh, Beyond Betting Podcast. And uh, thanks so much again for your support. Uh, enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye, guys. Uh, so, yeah. All right. So uh, Casey was able to hop in and join us. Hello, Casey. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <Apparently>. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, so as we were kind of just talking about Azula, um, I, I guess, did you just want to have any kind of comments you wanted to throw in about those first two scenes that we see Azula in in uh, the Avatar state? Um, yes. She made a quite an impressive first impression. I think I remember seeing that. And the funny thing was up until this point, in some, uh, we were, it's like we were geared to think that Zuko was the main antagonist, so to speak. Um and but realizing that like okay there's more there's definitely more to this guy and then to th throw this in it's like oh okay so this is this is on another level and this girl means business and i she's so and she's still she's younger than him so it's funny because she's like this is super scary so it's just kind of like having that i i remember just watching going oh god this is going to be this is going to be really scary. I, I just was scared of her instantly. Really, I, I not even kidding. I just I was impressed, but just sort of like, okay, so this is going to be a real problem for yeah. these kids. She seems so like you a really. <laughs> what I hear Casey say, and I'll sum it up for everybody: is you start to begin to wonder if Zuko was banished or if he ran away from home. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so true. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about, uh, just to kind of close out this lightning bending scene is that, uh, after she does this, we go to this close up on her face and there's one hair out of place and Lee and Lo just call her out on it. They're like, very good, but like, you know, still out of place. And she's just like, not good enough. And it's this, we just saw her perform an incredible technique but it was still not good enough for her and this is that glimpse into azula's character of this desire for perfection and this need for control and one of the things i want to bring up and it was in that video that hello future me did i thought it was such a wonderful point was that the her hair as a symbol for her growth as a character and as we all know kind of where that heads and what happens at the finale and what she does to her hair so keeping that in mind uh in terms of like what how that kind of always is this like thing playing against her or that she is like it's that need for control because she's always always looking so fierce and so put together we never see her like not <laughs> until like that until season three <laughs> 
Well, That's about really that actually, yeah, uh, I've in researching and preparing for this, I've been going back and watching a few of the uh, scenes with her in them, and um, one of them, I'm not sure where it falls, but she's fighting with Zuko. I think it's sometime in season three, clearly. Um, but like they're on the airships and they're having this big fight where they're jumping back and forth and doing all that. And at the very end of it, she gets knocked off the airship at the same time as Zuko. They like knock each other back. And of course, Appa shows up in the nick of time and rescues Zuko and they fly off into the sunset. But Azula has pulled out her hairpin and used that to like lodge herself on a cliff wall and so, like, her hair is loose and flowing free. And that was, it was really the first fight that we saw her objectively lose. Mm. And then at the end of it, like you said, her hair really reflects a lot about her. It's loose and wild and blowing in the wind right after her first actual loss to Zuko. Mm. That's so true. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just keeping that in mind, especially as we kind of go forward with discussion. Um, and at the end of this episode, the avatar state, we see Azula have a fight with Zuko. Um, I mean, just talking about the way that she manipulates him, uh, just for a second too, in terms of making him believe that Ozai wants him back and it's like, it's okay. And just playing into the thing that Zuko wants more than anything and that is to go home and to restore his honor and just see his father approve of him again. And she just uses that entirely to his advantage, to her advantage, to bring, you know, convince him to come out to the ship. And as they are, I mean, it's great because we get that same captain that was, you know, talking about like the tides not allowing them in, who's just like, uh, we should be able to, I think it was like, it's like, where would you like to, us to put the prisoners? <laughs> I can't believe, yeah. <laughs> Let's not be discreet, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they get in that fight. And what's so interesting about that fight is that Zuko is just filled with so much rage. He brings out the fire daggers and he is just flailing around and just like, just so angered and upset, and Azula isn't even firebending against him. She mm-hmm. is just dodging and disarming and just using his own frantic, angry energy against him during this entire fight. Yeah, that that fight actually is one of my favorites because it's even the way that she moves in there is so indicative of her and her personality and her her interaction with the world. Like I, I went through and I counted once. I think she actually strikes two or three times in the whole fight. And each time she hits her target precisely Mm. how she means to. And even at the end of the fight, she doesn't even strike. She just stops. She holds him and she just makes it very clear. The fight's over. Like (laughs) stop firebending, stop swinging at me. The fight's over. So it's like the youngest of umpteen number siblings. No joke. <laughs> um, I can tell you the thing that irritated any of us the most is when one of us would just not fight back in an argument. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the most irritating thing ever to siblings. 
like especially when you know like the other one is super angry at you for something and you know that they have a reason to be mad and they're mad and you just sit there and just smile and say nothing. Mm-hmm. It drives them more crazy and you love it. Yeah. You're like, look at you be a stupid person. It's awesome. Like, I'm just saying like that shows like they are really sibling. <laughs> that's and, the most well, sibling thing you could do to another sibling. Well, and that's what she does to everyone though, like whether verbal or in fighting. Yeah. Um, I mean, going back and watching a lot of her scenes, most of her fights, she is not fighting aggressively unless she's like vastly outnumbered. Like when uh, Zuko and Aang and Katara and them were with her in the village. Mm-hmm. Like that was really one of the only times and at the end when she flips Blade, that was really the only time that she was actually aggressively fighting and taking the initial strike. Almost every single other time she's blocking, she's dodging, she's pulling her opponent into exactly where she wants them and then she takes the attack and you're right but the other part of this and i'm gonna i'm gonna interject real quick is with her opponents though every other time she does it more as part of her strategy for basically getting what she wants with zuko you see that it's literally because it's fun, funny to her. It's fun for her. Mm, yeah. She's, it has nothing to do with the, I strategically want Zuko here. It's, this is funny, and I'm going to keep doing it. She's a master manipulator. Which, which, and and the, the worst, it, we've seen it in, in this case and so many others, I, I think anyway, where it's just like the worst kind of villain, which is also the best kind of villain, if you want to call her a villain, is the one that just stays completely calm. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes her an intriguing character, too, because you want to keep watching to see what makes her come unglued. Because yeah. everybody has a kryptonite. Everybody has something that's going to make them come unhinged. And seeing, like, that one hair out of place already kind of planted that, where it's like she seems like she's got it together, but there's she's like she's got some kind of complex. And yeah. we're, we're just kind of – that's encouraging for us as the audience to be like, okay, well, what's that? What's she all about? What's going to make her come completely unglued? She's got this Jedi thing going on where she doesn't let her emotions control her, but we know that she has some deep-rooted emotional issues. Mm. So she's going to use it against everyone else, but it's like, well, what's going to get to her? And that drives the show and her as a character too because if, I, it, I think just someone who's straight-up evil – who always does bad all the time and is just completely ruthless and there's nothing else to them, kind of becomes boring. There has to be something else going on. Mm. And they did that beautifully too. It was uh, just, she, that's why, that's why like you said that those little moments, just noticing little things where it's out of place. It's like, ah, okay. So there's something else going on. She does, she doesn't have it all together. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so much of the reason why, you know, you, why it made so much sense for Zhao to be defeated at the end of season one, because Zhao was a great villain, but again, he wasn't a sustainable one because yeah. it would start to become like, okay, Zhao is still trying to do everything he can there. And it's more impactful to have him meet the end that he does. And then this kind of void for like, who's going to kind of step in there to, you know, he failed, who like clearly the avatar has like an incredible amount of power like what do you need for that and ozai recognizes that mm. you know it's not going to be an army that necessarily defeats the avatar it's going to be someone with precision and yeah. that's that's where he knows that azula is going to be able to fit that bill yeah yeah i mean along those lines 
I I think even just her existence is such a a head nod to the phenomenal writing behind Avatar because like in the first season it was a little kitty it was goofy you know the just the whole tone of the show was fairly lighthearted for the most part it had moments but you know overall it was it was more or less you know a pretty standard kids show so you have this villain who's clearly evil he has a clearly defined goal you have a good team who's wacky shenanigans save the day and you know but then as it progresses and the show matures and the it starts touching on much more deeper complex uh subjects they introduce a villain like azula who's you know at the beginning she's outwardly cool and calm collected but as it progresses you can see she has so many layers and her uh, her methods are much more precisely targeted and even cruel than Zhao, who was much more of a blunt instrument. <laughs> mm, yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, with that, I want to get into, again, we, 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 we did discuss Azula's softer side, knowing that uh, even though that we know that she's manipulating Zuko uh, through that episode, it, it's again, we get to see that manipulation we not only get to see her as a phenomenal bender but also the way that she manipulates characters um and that kind of brings us to her next appearance and that's in return to omashu so uh before we kind of do uh dive into this we're not going to dive too deep i would uh, encourage our listeners to check out our return to omashu episode uh we definitely dove in really deep uh with uh, those characters as a whole and the episode breaking it down. But I do want to kind of touch, uh, since we are focusing on Azula for this one, uh, you know, her recruiting may and Ty Lee, um, and the way that she brings them into the fold in this idea of understanding that she needs this small elite team. Um, and what makes her such a, an effective leader is knowing when you need help. And when you can really use what resources you have to accomplish those goals more efficiently. So I, I want to specifically, uh, for those of you that were on that discussion, I just want to hear some of your thoughts about the way that she brought in May and Tylee into the fold in Return to Omashu and the way that uh, you know we saw her kind of have these friends and their role in that. Again, she's the the manipulator that she is. So she, she just manipulates them perfectly. Although it's funny, they still I feel like they still know what she is and who she is, despite that she does that because they still agree. They understand how powerful she is, and they agree to go along with her. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was interesting too, because especially the way, especially in in Tylee's case, with the circus performance, and what they, she has them throw at her, and um, it's like it's just sort of like a it's like some kind of just message to her like you're coming with me on this and you know it and it's sort of like i don't know it's i i i always had this sort of like weird feeling and i actually wondered i I remember this is not get tangential but i remember thinking at one point though during even during that episode that i'm like are these friends gonna stick by her no matter what because is that how long is that 
how long would that manipulation go on for before they wise up? But I think that they're in this, then you see that they're really in this together and they're, it's just really, it, I just thought that was such a strange relationship her with her, those, with those two, because they, they work together so well. Um, and they're technically, I guess, on the same side, but it's like, she kind of like manipulates them into to joining her. Um, and I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of like strange. Yeah. they yeah. Yeah, I mean there's definitely like a, a level of like ruthlessness to Azula that we don't necessarily like see as much with May and Tylee, especially Tylee like to start, but like May obviously she gets in a fight but there's still the her like blase like kind of look on life. So it's not the same intensity as Azula. So it's this idea of like okay, like they're clearly friends but like how do they fit in to that group and like is this going to be like something that like, are they going to make the same calls that Azula would yeah mm-hmm. well and I'm, I have a comment on that I, I'm kind of of the opinion that none of them ever actually thought they were friends except for maybe Tylee because she's kind of naive at times but like I'm sure Azula never th- actually thought of them as friends I don't think that Mai would be naive enough to actually convince herself that she was friends with someone like Azula. But on the other hand, like she's the princess of the Fire Nation. Pretty yeah. good person to have on your side if things hit the fan. Mm. So like I'm you know, it kind of makes me wonder like how much <laughs> kind of how much that. manipulation was on both sides like especially from maybe my's end because she grew up in the nobility she knows how things work like how much of this was her saying yeah i'm gonna stick close to the princess and see what happens Mm. i kind of have to disagree a little bit i feel like friends are a very odd set of group that you surround yourself with and often are people that you find traits in that you yourself wish you had sometimes um and I, 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 hear me out on this is like, you know, think about it from the prospect of people on this podcast. Like we came together, we're all different. And honestly, I wouldn't trade any of us for the world because it's awesome how different we are. Like, you know, Colin's way, like way more into like the tech video stuff than I'll ever be, but it is kind of awesome to have the conversations about things that we shouldn't talk about <laughs> in games. But, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, it's, it's stuff like that that brings us all together. And like, you know, and Casey's amazing art that we all just watch and we're like, wow, you know, God, I wish I could draw like that. But yet there are so there are so many parts of us that, you know, we look to see that we wish we also could exhibit and things that get us out of our comfort zone. Like Ty Lee definitely gets me out of her comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, but I think Azula sometimes wishes that she had that carefree nature like Ty Lee does. Um because you can kind of see it a little bit near the end where she wishes, like, in some fashion that she had that same, like, near the beach episode where she had that affection that, that everybody gives to Tylee. Yeah. Um, and then with May, though, she, like, kind of sees, like, her precision. Like, her pinpoint accuracy with those daggers. Mm. Like, that's the kind of precision Azula wants when she's just firebending and lightning bending and stuff. So, like, that's impressive, but she doesn't care. And, like, just that Oh, I'm good at this, whatever. Like, that's an, like, in Azula's mind, to be so good at something that it's just non, it's so inconsequential to you, it blows probably her mind. Like, so she finds these characters that 
she can't really make sense of, but she she likes. And it's it's like a really weird uh, thing to say, but I can see it actually happening where people do something like that, where they have a group of friends and they like, especially if you're a little off the beaten path, like Azula. <laughs> it's like Mean Girls in Avatar. Yes! <laughs> yes! we're going to go hunt the avatar yes <laughs> oh my god that's exactly what it is so I, I i think even like going farther with that like analogy i think that you both have like something that you're both hitting on that's i think i would think is right because like i i do see your perspective daniel that like it feels like at times it's more of a friendship of convenience um, because it's this idea of like they they know that she is the princess of the Fire Nation, and we even hear Tylee explicitly say it's just like you're like the most perfect and amazing person like that I know, and it's this idea where it's what you were talking about, Susan, that she's like she wants to absorb like so much of that what's great about Azula, and she looks up to her in that way that like they kind of have that feedback loop, but I, I think at the same time too, it is this thing where. You know, you have this complicated relationship and what happens when there is that breaking point for them uh, when we do get to the boiling rock. And I, I think that that's that's something definitely to keep in mind for, you know, when we get to that point. And I, I love the two different views that you guys brought up with that. Um, and see, that's the other thing. I didn't even get to mention how amazing Daniel is at coming up with a viewpoint I would never have thought of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um so uh, some of us are off the beaten path. Like, what can I, say? <laughs> I want to throw one more little point in though, because in mm-hmm. Return of Amashu, that that Tylee throws at May it was like a little. She says it'll be interesting to see Zuko, won't it, May? And that mm. was like, wait, oh, I thought we were going after them. We're gonna go see your ex boyfriend. Won't it like, be great? Like, <laughs> like, yeah. So I remember, and that and that was like intriguing because we're like, well, what's that? What's that all about? And still, and like the fact that they're so so they had a past, a past, and Azula's recruiting uh, this girl that Zuko. Hey, Casey. So. Casey. Yes. When we take over Boston, say we dress in green like the Kiyoshi Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and I, I think that that's a really good point too, because you know, with like the fact that there is that connection between May and Zuko, they don't know that in the previous like two episodes ago, Azula was essentially intending to kill Zuko. That light, that lightning, she was summoning lightning at the end. It was going to fire that at Zuko if it wasn't for Iroh redirecting that. But May entirely do not know that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, uh, that's, well, that's a that's a best friend burner right there. Like, mm. hey, saw your ex boyfriend <laughs> try to kill him for you. No, you're still in love. It's cool though, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So it, to kind of round out this first part of the discussion on Azula, I I want to talk about Zuko alone. Um. Because this episode is one where we really get some amazing insight. Uh. Elizabeth Welchie has writes this episode so beautifully and gives us such amazing context to both Zuko's past and Azula's as well. Um, Through the different flashbacks that Zuko has, we really get a glimpse into Azula's youth and how from a very young age, she was this very deviant, menacing child. (laughs) 
<laughs> like no. all children though really not all younger siblings <laughs> i'm the youngest too so yeah yeah exactly well, i am too <laughs> same i'm owning it <laughs> yeah wait a second we're all talking about how terrible younger siblings are and we are the younger siblings <laughs> Yeah, I'm okay That's like inception right <laughs> Someone quickly spin the drain and make sure we're not inceptioning each other here. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Um, so, you know, because we see her, she gets the doll from uh, Iroh and she just burns it. Like, not even considerate of the gift that she got. And, you know, we also get to see her in this, I mean, kind of the manipulation early on. Even with her friends. You know, she like kind of... It's like, oh, come on, Zuko, you got to play with us. Like, you know, we need four to be able to play. And it's clearly to set up this embarrassing moment between May and Zuko. And Azula's kind of like, you know, having fun, even though like she knows May has feelings for her and she knows that Zuko is easily embarrassed. So she just sees this opportunity of like kind of moving these two chess pieces around to have a something happened that will frankly just amuse her and like it's such a it's such a raw glimpse into who she is and who she becomes but like that's how she was when she was that young may and zuko sitting in a tree (laughs) literally that was like the equivalent of it okay yeah Yeah, definitely we could drive into like child psychology here where it's like if usually they'd say usually if a child does that they're they're craving attention even if it's negative, because she gets the negative attention from her mother. Um, hold on, hold on, I need to go get my Sokka beard real quick. Hold on, I'll be right back. <laughs> I, I might need a pipe too while we're at this. Take, take notes, Susan, you got two kids. No, um, I'm <laughs> we already talked about that, how not to raise this. No, but, but, uh, but just, it's interesting because she, she is doing that. I think though, on a deeper level beyond that, which is something that none of us are going through is that she's from a Royal family Mm. and younger siblings tend to get the short end of the stick. Because usually when there's an heir, the heir has a child and that's the next heir. So unless something happens to the, as we've seen in things like Game of Thrones, if something happens to the, you know, the, the, the actual male or the, the line, the, basically Zuko in this case, you know, then she would take power. So I think she wanted to show in a way her, I think having some power over him gave her a sense of confidence and early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she needed that and it turned into something much more sinister as she got older. Yeah. And it's, uh, Very interesting. Now tell me, how does that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to scream into this koala sheep? Yeah, scream into this kiddo. So, you know, kind of bringing that up too, you know, I, I love that you brought up, you know, her as the, you know, the second born in this royal family. But then, you know, also looking at her as the kid. And one of the points that I wanted to bring up is that this idea that like Ursa, of all the scenes that we see between Ursa and Azula, Ursa is always saying it like reprimanding her and of course it's well earned i mean there's like she is just you know doing these ridiculous like menacing things but at the same time you know because we get only this context we also get to see just like azula never is 
seen as someone that her mother really kind of loves in the same way that Zuko does. So even though she is kind of making these like power moves to establish and give herself confidence, you know, clearly there's something that she is lacking uh, that in her mother's eyes. I want to, I want to, I want to point this out here because I thought about this point very hot for a while. And uh, it's going to be me getting all deep and stuff, but thinking about it and thinking about the comics and thinking a little bit more internally about, you know, her mom, Ursa, like, if you think about it, right, like Zuko's birth for her was almost in some fashion, her birthing someone who she loved, but like, Ozai was different too at that point. He, you know, things had not had, like some of the stuff he hadn't probably gotten as power hungry as he was. He was still somewhat of a devoted father, probably. And the question becomes, what occurs in between Zuko and Azula's birth mm. that a resentment grows so much? for? Because, like, having two children, I can say this now, is, like, I literally had a second one because I really wanted to have a second one with my husband and my family, and we wanted to grow our family. But you have to wonder, like, for that resentment to be there at such an early age and just to look at your child and say, even no matter, like, I've talked to people who have children that literally... Have done some pretty terrible things, and they still love them. They visit them. They they do everything for them, and they don't see them. They say, "Yeah, I recognize that my child might be X or Y or something along those lines," but they don't. They don't. They don't accept that that child is fully a monster. Mm. And here, it's like Ursa places some form of resentment on Azula, and it's not necessarily for you know, replacing Zuko or being a favorite in Ozai's eyes, but it seems like the resentment is something else entirely. And you begin to wonder, like, did something happen between Zuko and Azula's birth that Ursa just loses everything and goes, well, I didn't even want a second child, probably, and she ended up with a second child. Well, I, I think what you're you're bringing up is, I, I think we can look into, especially like in the comics, in the search, and we just see how manipulative and abusive Ozai is towards Ursa and how it makes sense to me that when Azula is born and she starts you know, being molded by Ozai to be this like perfect firebender and is like becoming so much like him. She sees Ozai in Azula and I think it terrifies her and it can kind of feel like this already. She's trying to reprimand her and trying to, you know, speak some sense into her, but seeing how Azula just does not listen how horrifying that is to Ursa because she feels the responsibility that, you know, she brought this child into the world, but she is becoming this monster that she is frankly terrified of, but in Ozai. And now she has to find a way to be able to do that. But, you know, parents have to make these like decisions because there's no guidebook necessarily to do it. And like, she's just doing what she thinks is going to be right to, not have Azula go down that same path that Ozai did, but yeah. 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 Well, I, I have a couple points here. Um, one going back to what Susan was talking about, about um, in the comic, the, the search for her. Um, I haven't read the whole thing. I didn't quite have time to get through it, but uh, one of the things that 
noticed at the beginning was she was already in love with this other guy in her village before the then Fire Lord Azulon came and, you know, took her away, basically, kidnapped her and made her marry uh, Ozai. And so, like, she was already in a position that she didn't want to be. And so I, th- I think that may have had something to do with uh, like what you were saying, Susan, about the the resentment towards um, Azula and the the difference in the way that she treated her. I think like mm-hmm. by that point, like maybe you know, her situation, she realized it was this is real. You know, this is my life, and maybe you know that colored her perception of Azula. Um, but also, I I feel like she was a reasonably kind, fairly even keeled woman. And um, so, you know, when she was seeing all these things that Azula was doing as a child, I feel like, you know, she was doing her best to correct it and and set her back on the path towards, you know, being a reasonable person. But, I mean, you know, no one's perfect. And I think this is a great example of that because, you know, she wasn't written to be this perfect, kind, caring mother. Like, she she may have legitimately, you know, made mistakes with Azula and maybe she didn't, you know, spend as much time with her as she should have or, or comfort her and, and treat her like a, a loved daughter because she was scared of what she saw her becoming. And so she just, you know, every interaction was aggressive and hostile and snappish. Well, and that's, and this is one of the things that I, I always go back to and I think about it. I think Daniel's like kind of really on that right path here is that, you know, Azula, as Ursa was in love with someone prior to all this going down, and she has Zuko, which, you know, she's like, okay, I'm done, I don't ever, he's never gonna touch me again, I already gave him an heir, mm-hmm. and she sees that Zuko's not the heir he wants, and she then, I guess, sympathizes and empathizes with Zuko, because basically they're two people that are, she can see the good in him, and they're stuck in this situation, mm. and you know, it makes you wonder, okay, was Azula kind of like the child she really did not want to have? And then she sees that she thinks, like, maybe at first, like, oh, well, maybe she'll be like Zuko and I. And then when Ozai starts noticing, like, okay, oh, oh, she's 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 gifted. Like, that's when she's like, that bitch needs to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. that kind of, like, it's, it's, and it's terrible to say that, because, you know, you don't want to think that, like, that stuff goes on behind the scenes, but there have been several instances in history where you see that occur um, among, like, you know, families, royal families and bloodlines and things like that, where essentially the first year is born, it's not really what they want, Henry. And so they just <laughs> keep trying to have other things. And it's like, you read about, like, you know, this type of, um, this type of marital uh, transgressions occurring. And I'm, I'm using that word to kind of soften the blow here, but essentially it's a really terrible thing. And, you know, uh, it goes back to the idea that, you know, there's still some underlying effect that you have to consider in this day and age is that, you know, for as progressive as the Fire Nation is in terms of how they have women in roles of power in terms of military combat and everything else, they still have some form of archaic understanding of how the woman's household role is incorporated, mm. which is weird. 
Well, especially when it comes to like a like royal family, and I th- I feel like when you have uh, royalty and everything, it's steeped in deep tradition, and it's this idea of you know you don't push back against that, and it's this like they just there's a way of that of them doing these things, and it's meant to sustain a model that has gotten the Fire Nation to that point. And not saying that it's a good way to do it, but it's just like that's how they've kind of seen that, uh, you know, go across. It's worked so far. Yeah. Um, so so with that, I, I kind of want to just well, that get... dark quickly. I know, right? <laughs> um, so that that's, that's going to just close up our uh, part one of this discussion on Azula. Uh, clearly, we, we have a lot of really good stuff to talk about still, but... Um, and I'm really excited with just all the points that you guys brought up today. This has been wonderful so far. Um, so uh, just first off, thank you again, uh, Daniel and Susan and Casey for joining me for this episode tonight um, and just lending this incredible insight into a character that we all love so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> love to hate. Hate yes. to love. Yes. Ain't no party like an Azula party because an Azula party just leaves the house burnt to ash. <laughs> <laughs> it brings the house down literally yes, yes. <laughs> figuratively uh, literally yes. something all some of it all insurance of it. policies have like active azula written into them <laughs> fire nation insurance yes. it's a booming business <laughs> fire nation party gone wrong because you insulted the princess we covered that ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, great oh. All right. Well, thank you all so much again for listening. Remember, you can find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod, and visit our website at legendofportalcast.com, where you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. Um, and if you are there, feel free to leave us a review because we love it. Um, but for now, let us leave. <laughs>